Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, John Paris Jr. has great stories to tell about his decades-long career in hockey. It's been a remarkable series of firsts, including first black pro coach, first black pro NHL scout. Now there's a big push underway to try to see if the Windsor, Nova Scotia-born 76-year-old can be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. We ask him all about it. But first, it was one year ago tonight that Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and we look at some of those whose lives changed in an instant that day, including a woman from Kharkiv who spent the year documenting and sharing stories of resilience and destruction from her hometown and beyond, and found a worldwide audience in doing so. To a mom who left Kiev with her three kids last year and settled near Toronto, leaving her husband behind in Ukraine. What has life been like here for them? What are the successes? And what are the challenges? And what is going on in Russia? How has support for the war remained so high? And how has Vladimir Putin's grip on power stayed so strong? You know, there have been so many stories of courage and conviction that have emerged from Ukraine over the past 12 months. Uh, people, people helping out in any way they can. Uh, stories of people who've gone to the front lines to help. People volunteered from around the world to go help. Uh, it has been remarkable to watch. One key way that people have been helping out is trying to raise awareness about what's going on inside Ukraine. And that was particularly vital in the early days of the war because there were so few reporters on the ground there at the time um, that it took people themselves with their phones going out to document what was happening in places further afield. Places like Kharkiv, which happens to be Ukraine's second largest city, but is far in the east, right near the Russian border. Um, early on, Kharkiv was shelled a lot in the early days. We did interviews from Kharkiv as missiles were raining down on that city and did for days and days and days. Um, the destruction there was 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 devastating. One woman who was a security expert there, didn't have any training in journalism, would go out every day and walk around her city, walk around her hometown, document the damage, talk about it, talk about what used to stand there talk about how it was destroyed. She would talk to people as well. She featured not just the destruction, but also the resilience of the people in and around her. Uh, Children in subway stations, entire families in subway stations being used as bomb shelters. Um, Lineups for grocery stores, really a portrait of the war in Ukraine as seen through her eyes, through her eyes, in the city of Kharkiv as it was unfolding. And it was incredibly powerful stuff. She now has more than 140,000 followers on Twitter because so many people signed up or just signed up just to watch what she was showing because we weren't seeing it anywhere else. Um, And she, since then, has traveled the country. She's been all over Ukraine now doing the same kind of thing from all from the south in Kherson to the east in Donbass, back home to Kharkiv, to Lviv and so forth. She's been all over Ukraine documenting what has happened over the past year, giving it a particularly personal view showing people living through this war day by day. It's not that TV news can't always do that, but she does it in a way that's a lot more personal, a lot more immediate. And um, I'll give you a taste of what what it is. This is a recent one that she did, Maria Avdieva in Kherson. The city center of Kramatorsk, this used to be a very cozy, neat residential area until Russia smashed this four-story building with Iskander missile on the 1st of February. You can see that 
half of the building is completely missing and imagine how huge the explosion was. Four people were killed, one of the bodies found several days later. Kramatorsk, my apologies, not Kherson. So she's been doing those videos regularly. She did a lot at the beginning from Kharkiv, and she does, still does them regularly wherever she is to show the rest of the world what is happening in Ukraine, including in her hometown, but in other parts of the country as well. And Maria Avdieva joins me now. Maria, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's, it's good to talk to you in almost a year now. Yeah, it, what a year. I mean, I, I was trying to think back what it must have been like for you back in early February of 2022 and what life was like and how far, does it seem far away now? Yes, it's it looks like a completely different universe. The life has changed so much, not only for me, but for many Ukrainians. What made you decide? I mean, I remember seeing those videos online. We were all so eager to see something from the inside, specifically of Kharkiv, which is so close to the Russian border. And you were making these videos where you'd walk around the city and sort of just talk. What made you decide to do that? Well, at first, when I uh, decided to stay in Kharkiv, the situation was quite chaotic. No one knew what was happening. And uh, if Russian plan uh, and Russia planned back then to uh, take over Ukraine in three days will work out. All the people were fleeing out of the city and it was quite difficult to get information about what is happening. And I uh, I didn't uh, know myself what is in the city because uh, all the news agencies agencies were also out of town. So I decided to go out to see what is happening and then started to do a short videos what about what I have seen. And uh, they became popular and people started to tell me that they are much appreciated and they see the atrocities, war crimes committed by the Russian troops. Uh, in, in several weeks, it became obvious that uh, this is something, the feedback was very positive and it became obvious that this is something that people need, not only people around the world, but also people in Ukraine, because I had also requests from uh, people all over Ukraine about, uh, they were asking how is the situation in the city. And, and then it became something even more. Then you found yourself, I gather, over the last year, you've pretty much seen much of where this war is happening, whether it be the South or, or other parts of the East. You, you've seen a lot of Ukraine. What stands out to you about all that you've seen in the last 12 months? Well, it's very difficult to see my country like this. Uh, I started to, to travel uh, out of Kharkiv uh, in uh, in June. And uh, since June, I have been to almost all the regions, uh, to all the regions uh, where the front lines are now in the south, uh, in, in Donbass, then back to Kharkiv when it was liberated. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very hard to see country like this because I would go to the areas which were either heavily destroyed or where people were suffering during the occupation or talk to people after, uh, after what they have seen and gone through. So it's quite difficult. But on the other hand, everyone with whom I have been spoken throughout this year, all these people tell me, that uh, they are ready uh, to withstand and that no matter what Russia does, they Russia won't be able to crush Ukraine. And this is very important to hear and to realize. And this also gives me strength because I understand that uh, if some old lady 
already uh, from Kherson region, which was under occupation for eight months, which she doesn't have nothing. She was uh, basically starving. And she says, uh, I will go on. It's the, the, the most important is Ukraine wins. Then who am I to say, no, I am tired or I am tired of that war? Just see, I've I've watched the videos that you've made, and you've I've seen you talk to those people, and it's remarkable, uh, specifically the older people who've be, often been left behind in places that are very dangerous, where the situation is very dire, and their strength has been has been pretty amazing to see from from a distance, as I am. Yeah, that's true. Uh, very often they refuse to go out. I have a, a friend of mine who was like forcefully trying to get his own uh, relatives out of the area that is shelled, but they refuse. So usually they say uh, they are very connected to their place and they would say, if we die somewhere, we want to die at home. And they refuse to leave their homes. It's, it's very often these old people who are suffering the most, but also they have the strength because uh, they will say, yeah, we don't have nothing, no water, no power. But the main thing is that we continue living and we survive and Ukraine will win. And this is very important things that, that you hear. What about for you? I mean, I'm sure you've had friends and colleagues leave. Uh, you continue to do your work, but you're in Kharkiv, which is still uh, being bombarded at times, not as much, I think, as when we first spoke, but still, it's still dangerous. What allows you to get up every morning and go out and do your job and do your work and, and see the things that you see? For me, this is the way to cope with the war, uh, because uh, by doing something which I think is useful for the country, this is uh, how I can like cope up with with everything. The most difficult thing from what I hear from my friends and colleagues who left Ukraine is to be somewhere away, not knowing what is happening, but all the time on the news, reading every minute what has happened in Ukraine, and you are not able to help with anything and uh, this situation when you are helpless far from your home you cannot return is very difficult for many people and it, it makes them suffer in in a lot of situations those who stayed uh, they feel better because they can at least do something because when when you do something when I do something it it gives me this possibility to to continue and then also go into places where uh, uh, where the um, people are in a situation when the, the, their life is threatened every minute and see how they behave, it gives a strength also to see soldiers in the trenches. The last time we have been uh, to the trenches, which are two kilometers away from the Russian trenches. So they, you basically see the Russian positions and when the artillery strikes start, then the soldiers go into the um, underground bunker mm -hmm. and uh, wait until this will stop, then again go out. And when you see that people in these circumstances, they continue fighting for their country, even with the weapons uh, they have, uh, there is this understanding that there is no other choice for Ukraine, and it gives you the possibility and the ability to um, somehow to live through this situation. Uh, how is Kharkiv today, Maria? I, I see the videos you post. I know there are still shellings going on. What's it like as a city? I remember that video you shot of all the kids in the subway station waiting, you know, and this was you know, nearly nine months ago now, I guess. What's happened to the city since? 
But the situation in Kharkiv uh, became much more easier when uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive effectively liberated almost all the region. And it happened uh, in September. So from September uh, till December, the Russian Russian tactics uh, towards Kharkiv and a lot of other Ukrainian cities was to strike uh, with missiles uh, infrastructural objects. It means electricity station, power station, to use uh, electricity and power the weapons in this war. But now the strategy seems changing. There are reports, very worrying reports, that Russia is now again uh, beginning the new offensive. And it's also happening in Kharkiv region, in Kupiansk, which is uh, in the east of uh, Kharkiv region, which was liberated. Now there are constant artillery strikes and constant strikes um, all along the border with Russia. So from Kharkiv to Russian border, it's no more than 40 kilometers. You can do it in an hour. So, of course, uh, having uh, Russian troops on the border uh, gives a very uneasy feeling in the city. Uh, the city is very dark because of the electricity cutoffs. And uh, recently, there were several missile strikes in the city center. Russia has renewed these tactics. A lot of people again feel this uh, uh, threat of the missile attack because you never know when you go to bed where this missile will hit and which house will be destroyed. And of course, everyone is thinking if your apartment building might be the next one. Yeah, I mean, you talked about this when we last spoke too uh, back in back in the spring about just how. I mean, it's it's hard to describe to anyone who's never lived through it, right? The idea of always being living in fear like that. Do you have any hope that this will end? Yes, the, the only hope for Ukraine is to win in this war because uh, Russia openly says that their goal is to destroy Ukraine. And this is the matter of survival for Ukrainians. So people understand that either we win together with our partners who are helping Ukraine greatly, or Ukraine, Russia will just devastate everything. The, the, the only way when it will stop is when the war will be over. Some uh, military experts or military people say that they see that at the end of summer, possibly something will happen, but we'll see. War is very unpredictable for what we have seen from the very beginning of this invasion, we understand that everything comes very unpredictably and it's very difficult to foresee uh, how it will uh, develop. Yeah, just for you, uh, if you look back at the last year, um, what has surprised you the most about, about yourself, about the country, about everything that's happened in the last year? About myself, I would never think that I will wear a helmet, body armor and go into the trenches, would never see myself in such a role. Before that, I would see that I will be frightened to death and never do that. But then when the moment comes, you make yourself together and just go. And about the fellow Ukrainians, it's also the strength and this uh, ability to resist, this amazing Ukrainian resistance, which I sometimes myself like cannot realize where the people take their uh, this strength from. And what about your, as you look back at the last year, you look ahead, what would you like the rest of us to know about, um, about what's happening and, and how we should be thinking about it? 
I think that those countries that support Ukraine from the very beginning and the support is growing, uh, they know a lot. And uh, But what is more important is that this support is so highly appreciated in Ukraine. I have seen different flags, Canadians, Americans, British, uh, uh, everywhere, in, in sometimes in just in the trenches. And uh, when you talk to soldiers, they say that they feel the support. They Ukraine feels we are not alone here. This gives also the uh, possibility to believe in the victory. And for you, you're going to keep putting on your helmet and going out and doing what you've been doing for the last uh, the last 12 months? At some point, possibly, if I will then decide to write something about what I have seen. But uh, for now, I, I do write it on everyday basis on Twitter, make it very short and simple, but I'm thinking about doing something bigger. Well, Maria, you've offered such an incredible window into into Ukraine over the last 12 months. Thank you so much for talking to me again tonight. Thank you, Ben. It was my pleasure. As we really talk about a difficult, I mean, it's been a difficult year, right? We, uh, we were on the air a year ago when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Uh, we were hearing the air raid sirens as uh, shelling of cities such as Kyiv and Kharkiv began as well. And there are so many things that have happened over the last 12 months, so many different metrics you could look at. I mean, it's not numbers, it's lives, it's people's livelihoods, it's their families, it's their friends, it's their hometowns. But if you just look at what's happened to so many different things, whether it be military and civilian casualties, the destruction of entire cities, vital infrastructure, the list goes on and on and on. But one of the one of the uh, things that was so... Um, noteworthy early on was just the sheer number of people who left, who left Ukraine seeking sanctuary, perhaps nearby, uh, perhaps a little further afield. Often they wound up in neighboring countries at first. And then as we knew from people that we've spoken to over the last year, they found out uh, all over the world, whether people in Australia, I, I, we spoke to one woman, uh, Svetlana last year, who left, managed to finally leave Kharkiv um, and wound up in England. Uh, her, you know, one of her sisters is in Germany, another member of her family is elsewhere. So it has had a real tough toll on a lot of Ukrainian families as they've sought sanctuary. The numbers are, are staggering. 18.8 million left Ukraine over the past year. Uh, 10.4 million have since returned, according to the UN. Uh, so that leaves still about 8 million people who've been displaced. Roughly 20% of the population, many have come here to Canada. We, of course, um, put out a special program to welcome Ukrainian nationals and their families looking for safety in this country. Um, apparently, they've received about 860,000 applications, approved 560,000 of them, a total of about 175,000 Ukrainian citizens and returning Canadian permanent residents of Ukrainian origin have arrived in Canada between January 1st of last year and February 19th, just uh, a few days ago. And among them is my next guest and her three kids. Uh, this time last year, Sandy Tarasenko was in Kyiv. Uh, she and her children are now in Burlington, Ontario. Her husband, I believe, remains in Ukraine, and she joins me now. Sandy, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Take me back to a year ago. I mean, we were just talking about a year ago, the first air raid sirens were going off in Kyiv. It was early morning, very early morning, just after 5 a.m. Where were you and, and your family? Um, in a bad as everybody, we were home, we were sleeping, and just this explosion awake all Ukraine, and my family was not exception. I was sleeping 
um, in my bedroom, my kids in their bedroom, and we had a call from my co-worker. She was asking, should I come at work? And yeah, we were home because it's early in the morning. Did you, I know that you packed up pretty quickly because you left that same day, didn't you? But did you, had you planned for this at all? Was there ever a conversation within the family about what you might do if this were to ever happen? Um, yeah, you know, first of all, we like uh, pack our luggage in 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. And we moved to my husband's parents' house, apartment. And we left from Kiev same day, but a bit later because the traffic was huge and people mm-hmm. spent like uh, seven hours just to leave Kiev. Just seven hours in the big traffic. Your husband stayed behind, right? You, you made that decision? You knew, already knew that he would stay and you would go? Uh, first of all, every man staying in Ukraine, and men are not allowed to leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, secondly, my husband has three kids. We have three kids, so he could leave, but he's working for government, and he would never leave Ukraine because we all think, well, that's like for one week, for 10 days, for 20 days. We never expect that in one year we'll be still apart. So we left and, that very, yeah. And uh, he didn't want like to leave his job, leave everything, go somewhere, and then uh, he couldn't come back because it's a very big shame for men. Uh, like run away from country, not to protect us. Right. You found your way to Hungary, I believe. Is that right? Or you went to you went to a neighboring country before you came here. How long did that journey take to to to, to come across Europe and then finally arrive in Canada? Uh, so first, from uh, first, I moved to West Ukraine to my parents' house. I've been there for ten days. Uh, because, as I just mentioned, nobody believes that the war will um, be take so many like months. In 10 days, I understood that it's not like for a few days war. And Putin started to speak about nuclear bottom, about uh, so they invade to their Zaporizhia nuclear right. station. And I was afraid that he can press bottom and I should hide my children. So in 10 days in West Ukraine, we moved through Hungary to Austria. And we spent 17 days in Austria to get Canadian visa. And after that, uh, we moved to Paris because tickets to Toronto was quite cheaper from Paris and from uh, Vienna. Mm -hmm. And two days in Paris and we came Finally, so it took me one month to come. Um, I came in Canada March 24. Like right, so one, one month. One month, one month, exactly. Yeah. And you had your three children with you right there. I, I believe they're, is it 11? They might be a little bit older now, but 11, 9, and 3 when you left? Uh, yeah, no, it's a 4, 10, and 12. Yeah. What was it like for them? I mean, it, it must have been, how did you even explain what was happening? Uh, they know everything, mm-hmm. and of course they know that there is a war. They know what, what's happened. 
um, my 12 years old girl was even crying. She was back home. Uh, she missed daddy. Um, my second son is okay. I mean, 10 years old. You know, they're kids. They don't feel like this terrible need. They just need mama. Where is mama? Is home. And four years old, he doesn't care. Yeah, he's adopting. They, they, do, they do not realize what's happened. They just miss their uh, friends and miss their school. But I try to explain that even when you come back, you cannot just go back to school. You will not see all your friends because lots of people are abroad. Lots of kids left Ukraine. I see, right. see, we have news that almost every week children die. I say, I cannot risk like that. I cannot no. bring you back to Ukraine and like play these games. Oh, maybe Bump will not uh, come to my children's place. As the risk is too big. I, I can't stay in Ukraine. I can go and uh, help, but I cannot risk my children. And they understand it. Sandy Tarasenko is our guest this half hour. She is from Kyiv. She and her three children left Kyiv a year ago today uh, as Russia's full-scale invasion began. She is now living in Burlington, Ontario. We're looking into what it's like to have left uh, Ukraine in the last year and settled in Canada. Uh, Sandy, how was it coming to this country? Uh, it's, it's, um, it, I know it's tough to leave home, but how was the welcome in Canada and how were the services that were offered to help you and your children settle? Uh, you know, first of all, I was very impressed how um, nice people in Canada is. They're very, very nice. So lots of services, lots of, uh, like, agency connection with officers who always help. Lots of people from food banks, from different organizations. And just uh, our community, like Ukrainian diaspora, church, everything is very welcome. But... Um, I know many women here in Canada who come along with kids without husbands mm-hmm. and stay and stay in longer, like longer time is almost impossible. Because wh- when all help is over, uh, I'm the only who is working, who has to get grocery, clothing, pay rent, and it's not easy uh, because we are not protected. Like, um, everybody can just say, okay, we don't need you anymore at work. Like, you're fired. And I'm not talking only about me, about everybody. And they can say, okay, tomorrow you don't work anymore. And um, you're not protected here. That's number one. Uh, Second thing, that Canada is an extremely expensive country. It's in Ukraine. I feel financially, I, I used to feel like before the war, financially very, very well. So this money in Canada means nothing. I mean, if in Ukraine, good house, apartment can be for five, seven hundred bucks. So here it's three thousand. So it's impossible like to take money from Ukraine and live here. And to earn this, 3000 just to pay rent is not easy. So now we have like subsidy, but the subsidy will be over soon. And I don't know how to, how to continue living in Canada. And other girls I met from Ukraine, they say the same. It's too expensive. Second thing, I'm a French teacher and mm-hmm. kindergarten teacher, but 
I'm a good teacher, that's true. And uh, I cannot find a job in school board because I don't have education. Okay, so I'm ready to go to college to get my uh, certificate, uh, teach French, but that costs like $12,000. So the question is, how can I collect $12,000 um, having the salary like $2,000? is almost impossible. So I, I need to collect money, uh, work less, study, get the certification, and then I can like have better job. Everybody has this problem because good doctors, good lawyers, good teachers, our diplomas mean nothing. And when I try to show, okay, look, I can give you good results. Your children and children in school where I used to teach, they start speaking French very fast. So I teach them to speak sentences. I teach them songs, rhymes, and like... So you feel like but, you could you feel like you're qualified to teach here. I uh, yes, I'm very qualified and in Ukraine this qualification qualification means a lot because French is my first foreign language. English is not my uh first language. Um but I have no, I have no uh, Canadian diploma teacher of um, Ontario right. teacher of college so that means nothing. Completely so nothing. You've arrived here. It's uncertain. Uh, inflation has been very bad for everyone here, so it's been expensive, uncertain. You're on your own. You have your three kids to take care of. Obviously, just getting here is not nearly enough. Uh, there needs to be more done, at least, to make sure those who come here um, are given a step to to be allowed to succeed here. Uh, we cannot succeed because one girl, she's a very good doctor, and here in Canada, you know, there is problem. You cannot yes. like reach doctor very fast. She's perfect doctor, very good dentist, but she cannot work in Canada because her diploma and her like ten years experience mean nothing here. Yeah. And what are your pl- what are your plans? Are you thinking of staying? I mean, you, I imagine you at some point would like to go home, but you've mentioned earlier it's just not safe now, right? Uh, it's not safe now. I've been at home because I should. Uh, I'm still running my schools in Kiev. But I'm doing it online and still uh, running the program, and I help other teachers. Uh, so I've been there, and, you know, I can live in Ukraine. I've been on front line. Uh, I've been um, collecting money for soldiers, and we collect it nonstop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not safe for kids. Schools yeah, are not safe. Anytime children go to a basement. And yeah. they, lots of children have, like, mental issues. They're always afraid, lots of fear. Uh, when it's siren, parents worry, okay, where, where is my kid at school? It's siren. What are they doing? So it's not safe for children. I cannot come back. So now I'm trying to um, to get my certification. And I am calling, like, uh, College of Teachers, different colleges, and uh, studying for international students is very expensive. Yeah, no, I mean, I can only imagine, just because we, I think we've talked about this for in different circumstances for many, many people, but for those of you who've come from Ukraine on your own because your husbands are back home with the kids, 
you know, the combination of expenses, expensive rent, uh, not being able to do what you're qualified to do. I mean, it's all these issues wrapped up into one. And clearly it would be great if for those who've come here, as you have, we could find some kind of solution to it. Um, just how, you've, you've been apart from your husband. Is he okay? My husband, yeah, he's very okay. He's trying his best. And he has medals already. I'm very proud of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's doing a very great job. And, of course, I would like to come to Canada for at least two, three weeks to see children because um, small son, he, he, he remembers him because they are talking online, they have having FaceTime, but uh, it's, it's not good that they grow without father. Yeah. It's not good. I would like they like see him at least once a year, but uh, he's not allowed to come. And even if yeah. he's allowed, it's very expensive. <laughs> it's really very yeah. expensive. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, Sandy Tarasenko, thank you so much for sharing this with us tonight. It's been such an important part of all this, those who've left and where you are now. And uh, I hope to talk to you again so we can find out. Hopefully you, you can find some way to get those qualifications recognized because people need French teachers in this country. There's a shortage of them, we know. So it would be great if you could find uh, something to do in what you love and what you're trained to do. Uh, Sandy, thank you so much. Uh, and my best to your family. Okay, thank you very much. One year ago tonight, one year ago now, those missiles were landing on cities around Kyiv. Russia had launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and the entire world, really, much of it, took a took a breath to see what would happen. We hadn't seen a war of this scale on European territory since the Second World War. And early predictions were, of course, that Russia was going to win this war quickly. That's what most people had said would happen if this happened. Um, That, of course, turned out to be entirely untrue. We witnessed some incredible moments over the last year, whether it was uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky saying, I don't need a ride when he was offered to leave the country. He said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And just the way Ukraine has stood up to uh, this invasion and repelled in many ways this invasion, although it continues to be an incredibly destructive and life-changing war for so many Ukrainians. Um, What's going on inside Russia, though? Because that's been, I mean, it used to be Kremlinologists, and now we sort of talk about Putinologists, those who can try and read the tea leaves, or at least read from a distance what's going on in Moscow. It is a hard place to figure out. I've spent time there. I remember interviewing uh, a European Union ambassador who grew up in uh, the former Soviet Union, who said no one has really, no one in the diplomatic community really has any idea what's going on inside the Kremlin with Vladimir Putin in power. It is a very uh, things are kept very close. You know, there is not much information circulating around. So, a lot of the time, uh, it's anybody's guess what's been happening. What we can see from the outside is that support for this war appears to have remained strong inside Russia. There's clearly been uh, protests. We've seen those. Uh, There's clearly been a huge exodus of people responding both to not wanting to be called up to go fight, uh, as well as to the economic sanctions. A lot of there's been brain drain. There's no two ways about that. We talked about uh, the impact of the sanctions in the last half hour as well. But somehow through all this, Vladimir Putin's still there. He was out today. I mean, it was a, it was a big day in Russia today. It was called uh, Defender of the Fatherland Day. It used to be Red Army Day. It's a public holiday. Um, 
Putin talked about the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany back in the Second World War, uh, the Great Patriotic War, as he often talks about. I mean, this is part of the whole narrative that continues to be put out there by Russia. And also talked about Russia needing to modernize its armed forces to guarantee its sovereignty. So they've played this really as being a war against Russia, not Russia's war against Ukraine. And clearly it's a narrative that has found favor inside Russia because it plays into a lot of beliefs that already existed there. It isn't created out of nothing, like so many narratives that are done. He also continued his nuclear saber rattling today, which has been of concern for months now saying Russia would boost its nuclear forces by deploying a much-delayed new intercontinental ballistic missile, rolling out hypersonic missiles, adding new nuclear submarines. He went on to say that super-fast missiles are ready to be deployed against Ukraine. No one knows if this is all true or not, but certainly he's talking about it. Um, UK, The UK Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, said today that NATO needs to be ready. If this conflict spills over or, or, or Putin lashes out, it will be into a NATO country. Uh, and therefore... We need to be ready as our alliance, the alliance of 30 countries who, who do in vast numbers outweigh Russia in land, sea and air. So I think everyone around the world is looking in, trying to figure out what is going on. What is Putin's end goal here? What is he willing to do? What is happening inside the Kremlin? Well, to help us with that, joining me now is Jade McGlynn. She's a specialist in Russian media, memory, and foreign policy at King's College in London. She's author of the upcoming book called Russia's War, and she joins us now from near Oxford. Uh, Jade McGlynn, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I guess the title of the book says it all, because I think there's been this tendency in countries such as Canada to really try to paint this as Vladimir Putin's folly. And yet, as you've pointed out and has been pointed out in other places as well, this is, a, this is Russia's war, whether we like it or not. <laughs> Yes, I think so. And I think it's important to acknowledge it. But also really what I hope to do with the book is to try to provide some nuance, because you're right, of course, that some people, um, perhaps the, um, you know, traditionally very nice and kind um, Canadians want to put all of the blame for this war on, on Putin. And there's a certain logic to that. You know, he is the one who launched the war. He is the one who carries ultimate responsibility. But then I think the problem is that it puts Western governments in particular in line to come up with some really bad policies, because if we think that the problems are going to just be removed when Putin dies or whatever happens to him, that's that's not the case. On the other hand, I also really don't want um, to in any way entertain the idea that there's something innate or inherently um, wrong with with a Russian national character or anything like this. You know, that's a nonsense. In fact, a, you know, a much more pernicious nonsense. What I want to look at is why so many Russians are going along with and approve the war. And, you know, if we say they support the war, what does that actually mean in the context of an authoritarian society. And it's really just about trying to explain how we got here, because this war didn't start last year on the 24th of February. It started in February 2014. And we need that context to understand how on earth we ended up with this sorry place. And we need that context to try to find a way out of this sorry place, uh, I mm -hmm. suspect, as well. And, and it's clearly with the rhetoric on all sides of late, it's become almost impossible to envision what that might look like. Uh, but what have you seen as the misconceptions about Russia over the last year that might get in the way of uh, of Western politicians being able to craft something effective to see this out at some point? So I think there are a few sort of, there's a few things. The one that immediately springs to mind 
is this idea that Russians are zombified by the propaganda, you know, that it's a totalitarian dictatorship and anybody who even sort of so much as, you know, commits a thought crime is, you know, carted off to the gulag on, on, on site. It's just really not um, at all true. Of course, there's um, considerable censorship, particularly since um, early March last year when a, when a raft of new rules sort of banning um, different media. Even still, you know, I mean, Telegram is completely free to access and there's no censorship on there at all. There's quite a lot of criticism of the war and um, that's allowed, but it doesn't tend to come from the liberal sections of society. It comes from those who think the war is not being waged in the way they would want it to be waged or that it's you know not being done effectively or et cetera, et cetera. So I really want to look at why the Kremlin's narratives, particularly around Ukraine, but also about sort of Ukraine and Russia and, and Russian identity and Russia's role in the world, why they resonate and the extent to which they actually haven't been just top down, but also bottom up and almost a co-creation between the people and, and the political elites. But the other core myth as well is the idea that Russians are some sort of militarized sort of fascistic society, you know, rem- reminiscent of the, the Nuremberg rallies. Again, it's really quite far from, from, from the reality. Of course, you have people like that. And in fact, you know, the vast majority of, of Russians are really somewhere in between and, and broadly sort of think, well, maybe I have launched the war, but it's my country right or wrong now that have launched it. I've got to support them. We better finish it. We better win. Or, you know, they genuinely believe that Nazis are in power in Ukraine. You know, a lot of these narratives have been around and been consistent for ten years, for almost ten years. Um, and people do believe them, and they see themselves as doing, um, you know, a really good thing. They genuinely believe that they are saving people. And yes, maybe that's a choice to believe that. But um, in the book, I certainly look into why they would make that choice, and I just want people to think whether or not they would really make such a different choice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly we've seen other countries, whether it be America and Iraq or NATO and Afghanistan, we've seen other countries create create narratives around why we're at war, right? Mm-hmm. What always surprised me about what's happened between Russia, specifically amongst Russians, is that they know Ukrainians. They've been there. A lot of them have family there. They've traveled there. They vacationed there, and it, it's it's hard to imagine how how they've managed to turn Ukraine into an enemy when they're so familiar with it. And I think that's the part that's been confusing for an outsider to see. Yeah, and I think that's understandable. And, you know, we've all seen, or many of us will have seen the accounts of relatives in Ukraine, you know, sort of calling the ill people in Ukraine, calling their mom and saying, oh, you're bombing us. Like, don't lie. We're not bombing you. (laughs) Um, It's just sort of really, it feels quite insane. But Actually, you know, there are people in Kiev who are pro-Russian. You know, not, I'm not talking about people who are collaborators or, you know, are sort of going to do anything about it. It's very difficult if you see yourself as part of a certain group. It's very difficult, no matter the circumstances, to reject that group. And especially if there's another way out. And of course, with these elaborate narratives that are really consistent, that are threaded through popular culture, because it's fine to look at the over the top, very dramatic, very Fox Newsy um, types of propaganda that we see, or Fox News on steroids, to be fair. But it's more pernicious in the way that it's in the, you know, the sort of the new World War II blockbusters. Ukrainians are always traitors in this. They're always sort of trying to collaborate with the Nazis, or at best, they're kind of simpletons and yokels. And really that is the essence of why so many Russians have been so upset 
at Ukraine's post-2014 path is because to them, Ukrainians are Russians and they see this as being treacherous. So Ukrainians aren't just enemies, they're traitors. And I think everybody knows there's quite a difference sort of between the two. And for Vladimir Putin and many in Russia in particular, there's a culture of you can kill the enemy, you can you can treat him with you know sort of respect, though. Whereas traitors, traitors are something else. Jade McGlynn is with us. She's a specialist in Russian media, memory, and foreign policy at King's College in London. She's author of The Upcoming Russia's War. We're talking about, we're taking a peek inside Russia, such an important part of this war uh, over the last year, the changes that have happened and so forth. You raised a really interesting point in an article that you wrote about why there has been a pretty significant level of disbelief about the accusations coming out of what's been happening uh, in the war, that it's so much easier if you're, say, a, you know, a Russian mom and you've lost a son uh, fighting in Ukraine and he hasn't come back or she hasn't come back. And you're looking at this as, well, did they die a hero or did they die, you know, something far less pleasant? And that buying the narrative becomes so imperative. I mean, it's a hard, the alternative to the narrative makes buying the narrative that much more understandable sometimes. Yes, I think it really does. A lot of emphasis in the West is put on sort of very black and white depictions of Russia, you know, that if, if you sort of do sort of one thing, then you'll be sort of, you know, shot. And then actually, when we look at the figures, we can see that of the people who, who have protests, uh, 19,000, which is a very high proportion of the total numbers of protesters, um, were initially detained, but charges were brought against around sort of 430 of those, and only a handful have been arrested. Now, of course, that's in no way to, to suggest that that isn't horrific, because it completely is. But the point is that sometimes this focus on, on this idea of an almost Stalinist terror rearing its, its, its terrifying head distracts us from the corrosive nature of fear, which is actually, you know, that encourages self-censorship or that helps people to almost deceive themselves into thinking that, oh, well, you can never know what the truth is. And, and, and they do have a point. There are some people who like, you know, Nazi collaborators from that era. This sort of encourages you to, to stick with I don't just want to say the easy narrative, but also the safe narrative. And we have to remember that just not everything is just about being sort of carted off. One lady in, in Vladivostok, she um, protested um, against the war. She, she left a Ukrainian flag over a monument and they took away her children because they charged her with extremism. I don't think that anybody would have you know much doubt on, on on whether or not they would then want to go and do a similar protest and risk their children being sent to to a soviet orphanage so again i, I don't really intend the for the book to be some sort of right i figured the russian more out this is it solved russia this explains it this is the russian soul we have far too many books about the russian soul this is really just about trying to explain the russian context to you know, mainly a Western audience and asking people to have that sort of strategic empathy. So not sympathy, sometimes very hard to feel sympathetic. Empathy, that ability to, to understand, because otherwise we're, we're really never going to be able to figure out sensible policies. Yeah, when one looks at, at what's happened over the last year, uh, it's also easy to understand that, you know, who understands the Russians quite well? The Ukrainians. And that's why this war yeah, has been exactly. so has been so uh, unpredictable in many ways, because they do know each other really well. In fact, if, and if anything, the Ukrainians know the Russians far better than the other way around, it seems, at least of one year <laughs> into this extended war. 
the Ukrainians know the Russians well and they treat them as with the respect due to a you know to an enemy in the sense that if we think about General Zaluzhny, uh, sorry General Zaluzhny, the the sort of head of the armed forces of Ukraine, he has really studied his counterpart, his Russian counterpart, sorry, um, General Gristin, his writings and his his philosophies on warfare. Uh, whereas you know the Russians, they didn't care. They, there's no Russian specialists who speak Ukrainian. Why would they need to speak Ukrainian? They just treated it as if it were a sort of province or, or an outpost. And I mean, there's one quote from one political elite uh, in an interview from my book that really sticks out to me, which is just, yeah, sure, they're Ukrainians now, but you just wait. They're Ukrainians while they have Ukrainian TV. When we switch on the Russian TV, they'll be Russians. And he didn't see anything dismissive in that. And that's the important thing. The, the Ukrainians took the Russians seriously and the Russians didn't take the Ukrainians seriously. And they didn't bother to understand that Ukrainians really aren't Russians. They really don't see themselves as Russians, but nations aren't these immutable essences, but something that are constructed and reconstructed and renegotiated. And that the Ukraine that they were invading that never existed except in their minds. Yeah, in their minds and in some of the propaganda in and around the Donbass and after 2014, right? Some of it had already been, they'd sort of had a little Petri dish of it and thought it might work for the whole country. But Anyone who had spent time there knew that it wouldn't. When you look forward, it feels like the rhetoric has become even more cemented than it was in the past. It's hard to see them ever renegotiating anything, negotiating at least in the short term, but they can't fight forever either. Neither side can. And when one looks at what the future could hold, if you look down the road, I mean, this is going to significantly change that region for good, you get the impression. Yes, it's, it's going to have lasting impact, um, and it already has a lasting impact. It'd be very interesting, you know, in, in many years to come, in decades to come, when the archives opened and we see how many of the post-Soviet countries were secretly sending supplies and support to Ukraine, because I have a feeling it might be more than we think it is at the moment. Interesting, yeah. I think even the entire way that, that sort of, say, somebody like Emmanuel Macron or Olaf, um, well, especially Emmanuel Macron, actually sees yeah. the main person who speaks about this, um, the, the way that it's framed, which is, you know, okay, well, what could each side give? It's just totally the wrong mindset. I mean, I, clearly, uh, you know, who doesn't like the concept of, of negotiation? So this isn't a, a dig. I think if there's even a 1% chance, great. But there just, there isn't even that chance at the moment. The, the question is not, oh, what can we negotiate? It's how do we get to a point that makes the Russians willing or ready to negotiate in good faith because we are not there yet. And realistically, their understanding of Ukraine and their need to control Ukraine, I mean, in this case, to totally subjugate and even destroy it, is 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 it's fa- it's at the foundation of their entire understanding of Russia's view in uh, Russia's role, sorry, in the world of, of, of sort of the, ident- the national identity that Putin has put a lot of effort into constructing and also he really believes is, is sort of Russia's purpose, Russia's mission in the world. So you're not going to unpick that. That is going to take generations, you know, even in the best of circumstances. What you need to do is at least to be able to deter the Russians to such a point that they give up. On, on some of these aims, or at least put them off and then hope that Putin really is mortal. And at some point he dies or goes away, there's some sort of political or mortal demise. And then the next person um, will be at least somebody where these conversations could start to happen. But I don't think they can happen with Putin. Jade McGlynn, uh, the book is called Russia's War. It's out uh, next month. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, my next guest has many friends, many, many friends. 
in the world of hockey, thanks to his six decades of work. And the list of his accomplishments is really an incredible list of firsts. Born in Windsor, Nova Scotia, John Paris Jr. is now 76. Um, But he has done so much in this sport. It would begin with him starring at home in Nova Scotia. He was then invited to play for the Canadians franchise, invited by none other than Scotty Bowman himself, if you're familiar with him, um, who traveled all the way to his home in Windsor, Nova Scotia, to ask him to play. Now, illness would cut his playing career short, but he would make the transition to coaching in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League in the late 60s. He'd become that league's first black coach. He then became the first black scout in the NHL with the St. Louis Blues, the first black general manager and and in professional hockey, and the first black professional hockey coach when he led the Atlanta Knights to a Turner Cup uh, victory in the now-defunct IHL back in 1993-94. He calls the Air Canada Cup win in 1987 as coach of the Richelieu Rivere, though, the highlight of his career. So let's rewind to 1987. Like I said, I'm 5'5", I'm black. There were no black coaches at that level. And they're listening to everything I'm saying. And uh, they carried me on their shoulders. And when we won in Quebec, uh, they were we were like a family. So for me, I just couldn't help but just stand there and look. I was so happy for them. Hopefully today, those players are treating people as human beings, respectful those, and uh, in the right way. But when we won and I was able to look at that, it was special. John Paris Jr. there. There is now a grassroots effort underway to get John Paris Jr. inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's called From Paris to Toronto, obviously his name. Toronto is where the Hall of Fame is. And there's a petition out there. I'll get you the website address when we're done. Um, But Hockey Nova Scotia has launched this petition uh, on February 1st, calling on him, John Paris Jr., to be recognized for his contributions to the game. And with more on that and many other things, John Paris Jr. joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, your, your your story reads like a who's who of hockey, right? It really does when you look back at the people you've dealt with, the people you've coached, the people who coached you, the people you played with. But that first story of a certain uh, famous coach and general manager coming, taking a 17-hour train ride to come see you is a fantastic one. Tell me about Scotty Bowman showing up at your place. Well, first of all, let's be very clear. I, I, we, I'm, a, I'm black, I come from a black family and in a small town in Nova Scotia. A lot of people overlook Maritimers. And you have a gentleman that takes the time that happens to be Caucasian, coming from Verdun, coming from the most famous prestigious organization in the world in hockey and probably in, the, in all sports at that time, coming to your house to talk to you. The respect factor that I gained just from that, it'll never go away. And that's a major reason people have to understand why I talk about Scotty Bowman, because it was something unheard of during that era. As somebody that was working for the Montreal Canadiens, showing up at your house, a black household. Now, nobody would have dreamed of that in, in the early 60s. And the fact he did it, and then he became friendly with my dad. The two of them talked so much, they forgot about me. <laughs> so uh, Scotty Bowman, for me, uh, he's special. I saw a side of him of honesty. I saw someone tell me exactly what the expectations were, what I would have to encounter, and how I should handle it. 
I was astonished too that there are some parallels between you and Scotty too, because his career ended when he was young and he and he couldn't play, even though like you, he was I don't think he was as good as you were, but there was a lot of on-ice talent there. And then all of a sudden, at a very young age, you need to shift to a different mindset. How did that happen for you? Because you you were off to a great start, but you but you were you were sick. I realized when I wasn't able to do the things I was able to do. Certain games I could go out and I could dominate. Other games, I couldn't do anything. And sometimes the coaches would say, well, maybe he's a prima donna. Maybe it's just, it wasn't that. I was ill. I can remember being at the Junior Canadians camp, which I didn't make. Normally, I should have made it, not because of they made a mistake. If I had been healthy, what they discovered was, well, I, I'd been ill since probably the age of 15, 14. One morning, I went out to practice in my legs, and I had trouble breathing in my legs, and I was passing blood. I didn't say anything to anyone at that time because I was scared that the consequences of it. And that's when my game changed a bit. And then you find yourself as a young man, um, still loving hockey and then needing to make a shift. And I guess that shift happens in the late sixties, right? You, you become a coach. Mr. Charlemagne Pelicani was director of sports and recreation in St. Joseph de Sarenne, South Shore of Montreal, which you know very well, came to see me and he said, uh, John, I'm looking for a coach, and you're the one we would like to have. Now, why that happened was because while I was playing for the Les Aperviers de Sarel and the Quebec and the junior hockey, I used to go and give trophies out and just hang out at the athletic club in St. Joseph because I had a my billet was there. So I looked at Charlemagne and I said, Mr. Pelican, I said, there's no black coaches out there. I said, you're putting yourself in a situation to have maybe some problems. He looked at me and he said, I'm not looking for a black coach. So I'm looking for a coach and it's you. I said, oh, fine, you have one then. And so I started coaching the youth and that during that same period. So that's how it happened. That's the start. And those kids today, they're my friends. Every one of them. St. Joseph de Sorrell, I could go anywhere I wanted to go. The kids, it was coach. It wasn't a black coach. Because I must say, you have to remember, I've always said ever since I was a child, I'm black by nature and a coach by choice. So uh, it was just a, a huge family. I coached three, three teams at that time, and then it ended up with a ballon ballet team. Uh, ballon ballet. A broom ball team, a broom ball team. Wow, yeah. Young females, young girls. And I chuckle because there, a lot of them are grandmothers today. And uh, I, talk, I like the players. I talk to them all. We're very tight. So that's how I had my start. It's amazing because I picturing that time in those communities, you might have been the first black person they had ever met for a lot of them. <laughs> for many of them. Yes, it was. <laughs> but, you know, now the kids, the parents, uh, they're special. I mean, there'd be no John Paris at all coaching if it hadn't have been for Charlemagne Pelican and the mayor O'San, St. Joseph and the kids, plus the uh, servant and the Sorrell after uh, the midget teams and that. Uh, no. And they were good hockey players. There were te teams that wouldn't play against my uh, juvenile team. They didn't want to touch them. Not because it was me. It was because they were that good. They played the game the way it was supposed to be played, and they listened. Paris Jr. is with us. He is a uh, someone who's seen it all in hockey, played with some of the best, coached some of the very best, and been a builder himself for decades now in hockey in places that uh, many people wouldn't be able to find uh, too easily these days, parts of Quebec. So you continue through your junior career uh, through the 70s. 
when do you start to move into the to to another level of hockey when you move on into I know that you went to the Atlanta Knights in 1994 but there was scouting as well how did you move up into those other ranks uh, of the game well it was illness because often I would be at the hospital I spent many months in the hospital and uh, I have a non-visible disability which everyone's aware of outside of the cancer that came along but it was the players, you know, it's the players that obtain the chances for you. It's not John Paris Jr. You can't do that by yourself because they would apply to certain things that I would do at that time that were not conventional. Uh, for example, I would add experts in certain different areas that others weren't doing. I always watched the coaches and I paid attention to what they were not doing, not what they were doing. And I would pick the brains of football, baseball, all the other sports, NBA However, when you go somewhere and you you have no thoughts of ever being behind the bench and you start talking to the players and talking to the coaches and then you wake up one day and they're offering you the head coaching job. So you do what other coaches do. If if they convince you, you take it. I knew if I surrounded myself with people that could do things that I was not able to fulfill and that I could do my thing, which is game performance, lecture, but I needed people that could do other things. So I hired hired, had the team hire, and I had their permission. I'll give you an example. Ballet jazz professional. Really? So you hired, you brought in a ballet jazz professional for for these young guys. They were trained in ballet jazz. I hired a power and skating instructor that was a figure skater for the edges. I also went out and I had a friend, Dr. Sylvain Guimau, who worked with the Canadians, later on Tiger Woods, Mario Lemieux later on. And I asked him, I said, listen, I need to know the skeleton areas of all this, all of the bone structure of the players. And he said, I know what you want. You're trying to find a way that's different than what the other coaches are doing. I said, yeah, everybody's studying players that they have to do it this way. This is the way you shoot a puck. This is the way you skate. I said, I'm going to train them as individuals according to their strengths. If they can't move a certain way because of their bone structure, I'm going to let them shoot where their strength or play to the, the way that they have, where I can get the most out of them and they can get the most out of themselves. Tell me a bit about going to Atlanta to coach uh, to coach in the in the '90s because you got there and and with and within a year you'd you'd won the IHL championship right well, that was that must have been a real a real accomplishment for you at that level. Well, yeah, we did at that level. You didn't have an assistant coach either. I broke into the pros as uh, when I arrived there. I had to figure out how am I going to handle this. I, most people were talking about my skin tone. I don't worry about my skin tone. I'm a coach. I. And so they said, well, what are you going to do with people? I said, people, what? I said, people have been yelling at me all my life. So it's not going to change anything. But I found that in the minor pro ranks there at the I level that I wasn't receiving the same uh, ignorance that I was receiving at lower levels. Tell me, but what's been your reaction to this idea of the Hall of Fame? It, it, must, be, it must be nice to see. It's humbling. We, we do not coach for the accolades like that. We coach for wins and losses and development of athletes. I was surprised and I never realized just how many good people are out there. Suddenly people I, I'm unaware of and they're, they're telling me, well, you talked to me and this, uh, you did this with me and uh, little things that I never put any importance on when I was maybe younger through the years. And I found out something very important at 76 those little things that you do, that little second more that you take to help a player or you need people behind you, but you need you need to try to be the best you can be. You need to do the right thing because right's never wrong. Even if you're contested for it, it doesn't matter. So 
That's what I've, I've gained more, regardless of what happens. If I'm in, if I'm not in, I'm pleased. Somebody took the time to say, at least to show a little respect to John Parrish Jr. I can't ask for any more. No, it strikes me that from the get-go, you just love the game and the game loved you back. Well, I'm passionate by, you know, that I can talk about it all day. It's what I do. I mean, I sat on the bench on Major League Baseball, Bobby Cox, going to back, I was learning. I'd go, same thing with NFL football, Bill Walsh, San Francisco 49ers, or the, the, the basketball guys, the Hawks. I saw the great ones. And I sat down with Hank Aaron, good friend of mine. And I, unfortunately, he passed away. Neil Hoyt, who was a ticket manager for the Atlanta Knights, he, he introduced me to Hank, and we hit it off right away. Who would have thought John Perry Jr. would have be friends with Hank Aaron? John Belleville, yep. Rocket Richard. I mean, we talk about race. And yes, I've had a lot of ignorant things done to me, but I must say I've had a lot of good things that were done for me. And that's what counts. It's education of people that'll make things better. It's not by just yelling wolf all the time, because that's only going to bring the, the nastiness out from others. Sometimes you just have to keep going. Any advice to other coaches out there? I, mean, I know there's a lot of people who do that, you know, a lot of people at many levels coaching right now. When you look back at your career, What's the one piece of advice you'd give anybody who would come to see you and say, I'm a coach. How, sh how do I replicate what you've been able to do? Well, not what I've been able to do because there are coaches that have done more than me and have accomplished more and smarter than I am. However, there's one thing I need to tell them. You need to surround yourself with, don't surround yourself with your friends. You surround yourself with competent individuals who become your friends because they're competent, because they're going to make you better. They're going to give you a longer lifespan within a league. Or, and they're going to help you develop the team and the players within the structure that's desired. And the second thing that's important is that you have to understand that like, what do you do once you've attained skills and you have talent? I don't care how talented you are, how much skill you have. Can you play? Can you see the game? Can you execute? Because what we want are players that perform. So apply to performance. Apply to giving them the tools to become better. John Paris Jr., it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.